Welcome to the Parlay Podcast, a thought-provoking and entertaining podcast that breaks down the pathology of speech, language, and other processes that affect the way we communicate on a daily basis. Professor of Speech and Language Pathology, Chantal Mayer-Crittenden, hosts a bevy of guests who help her explore and explain the diverse landscape of speech, language, and their relationship with the brain. Bienvenue à Parler en balado. Ce balado qui se veut à la fois stimulant et divertissant décompose la parole et le langage, ainsi que d'autres processus qui ont un impact sur la façon que nous communiquons au quotidien. Professeur d'orthophonie, Chantal Maillé-Crit... French listeners out there, you can expect to hear an episode coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, this will be recorded in French, of course, but we'll be addressing matters such as French as a minority language in a community where English is, of course, the majority language. What does that mean? Uh, bilingualism, how can we best encourage our children to learn a minority language and much, much more. So stay tuned for that and I'll be posting about that on my Instagram, on theparleypodcast.com and as well as uh, Facebook. So for this episode, I have a dear friend of mine and a colleague, Dr. Roxanne Belanger. She is an assistant professor at Laurentian University here in Sudbury, Ontario. And she'll be talking to us about her research in a very interesting field. And I will actually let her introduce herself. So good morning, Roxanne. Good morning. Uh, thanks for having me. This is so fun. My first uh, podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, so yes, I am a speech language pathologist like yourself. And I teach at the undergraduate and graduate level at Laurentian University in the School of Speech Language Pathology or Orthophonie. Uh, so before I was teaching, I was a clinician at the Children's Treatment Center in Sudbury. Um, and I worked mostly with the preschool population, but also some school-age children, uh, having a variety of speech and language um, difficulties. Um, so we, there's a lot of programs there, and I, and I worked in a lot of them. Um, but the one that, I, that most influenced me, I would say, is the neonatal follow-up clinic. So that's a multidisciplinary clinic uh, where we follow children who are born prematurely or at risk. Uh, so there's a pediatrician, there's a physiotherapist, an occupational therapist, and then a speech language pathologist. And we assess um, children longitudinally um, at specific ages where we expect to see specific developmental milestones. And um, if we notice that there are delays, then we refer them to those disciplines. Um, so it's part prevention, part screening, um, and early identification. I'll just maybe ask you to clarify for our listeners who don't know what makes a child premature, what mm -hmm. gestational yeah. period. Or yeah, so um, a typical gestation is 40 weeks, and a child born prematurely is born before 37 weeks. So there's... Um, then we kind of we can subdivide prematurity in, in subcategories as well 
because there are some children that are born prematurely at 28 weeks, which looks very different than a child who's born prematurely at 35 weeks, for example. Um, so when a child is born, they can be um, extremely premature, very premature, or moderately and late premature. Um, and generally speaking, the more the child is premature, the, the higher the risk of delays. Um, so in the research literature, they kind of say that it's proportional. So gestational age or prematurity is proportional to the percentage of delays that we observe in kids. Mm -hmm. Now that's not always the case um, because in medicine and in rehabilitation, we're getting much better at caring for children who are born prematurely. So you can see children that are born extremely premature who do quite well mm -hmm. um, in their development and in school, um, but the, definitely the risk is higher for those children. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And interesting because uh, my brother 45 years ago was born um, I guess when he was um, what, six guess, months yeah I think he was 28 yeah, or 20, 29 so weeks. you yeah. know 40 years ago that he was baby, basically a, a miracle baby and and he's done quite well I mean mm -hmm. uh, he's a successful man a father and uh, is, is doing you know miraculously well considering the medical advances at the exactly time. yeah um, and, and interesting also is that my firstborn was three weeks mm -hmm. early. So I guess, you know, another week and he would have been considered premature. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you've done a lot of research on this population. What, what are some of your findings? Um, so I became interested in that population uh, when I started to see clinically that an exa examples of what I've just been saying. So, you know, you have some kids that are born at 27 weeks who go on to do fairly well in terms of their development and their their success in school. And then there are, there are other kids who are born at that same level of prematurity who don't do well. So I, I really started to question what is it that makes some children succeed and others um, uh, go on to have delays. And that's there are some pretty well-known risk factors that have been established, um, but from a language perspective, uh, there's a lot more gray area. Mm -hmm. um, so my PhD work focused on outcomes of children born prematurely and looking at different risk factors. So risk factors can be divided in different categories. There are medical risk factors. So born, being born prematurely, for example, is a medical risk factor. Um, having to have oxygen or CPAP or something like that after birth is a, a risk factor. Uh, and there's a host of, of, of known risk factors um, for development. And then there's also the more social aspect of risk. Mm -hmm. risk. And that um, is more the family environment, so the social, uh, socioeconomic status, um, the parents' education level, um, the fact that you are a minority or not, an immigrant or not. Um, so those are the more social risk factors um, that have been shown to to impact development. Mm -hmm. and, and those would impact any child's yep. development and then you add on prematurity. Mm -hmm. Now I know that uh, for premature children, they often use a corrected age. So for any listeners out there who may not know what that is, can you maybe explain what that means? <laughs> yes, yes. So that's a, it took me a while to be able to explain it um, appropriately. Um, so I will use a month because a month is easier. So if a child is born a month premature, then uh, we don't expect them to um, develop at the same skills as if they at the same time as if they were born um, at term. So uh, hypothetically, uh, when a child comes in at 12 months, 
um, and was born a month premature, we will assess that child as if he or she is 11 months and not 12 months because okay. we don't want to penalize them for mm -hmm. being born early. Um, they were supposed to be in the mother's stomach um, and continuing to develop and they were um, not awarded that chance and mm -hmm. so we, we don't want to penalize them, like I said, for, for being born early. So that's called the corrected age. So for a child who was born three months premature, uh, it's the same thing. So at 18 months, we would not uh, we would not assess that child as an 18-month-old. We would assess that child as a 15-month-old. Okay. And generally speaking, um, we do that until the child is two years of age. Okay. And that's because research has shown that that's mm, a large proportion of children will catch up um, by that point. So we talk about corrected age and chronological age until two, and then we just assess them according to their chronological age. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that always confused me as a clinician. You know, yeah. This is their their chronological age, but corrected age is, is yeah. something completely different. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so you looked at their language abilities. Um, what what findings? Yeah, we looked at fine motor development, we looked at gross motor development, and mm -hmm. receptive and expressive language. Um, so the, I mean, there's always advantages and disadvantages to doing to doing research in terms of the population that you have. And so we, I did um, analyze the data for all the participants that, or all the children that were being followed in our neonatal follow-up clinic. Um, the problem is that we're a tier two hospital, so we don't see um, a lot of children born prematurely. So I didn't have a huge number of kids to begin with, so I had about 98. And then that was further diluted by the fact that I had to divide them according to the type of prematurity that was, whether it was mild or moderate or severe. And so then I wasn't even looking at a group of 97, I was looking at smaller groups mm -hmm. within that 97. Um, so those upfront or the the weaknesses in the study um, but what we did find uh, was that um, and this was um, according to other research as well um, that it was that in fact delays were proportional to gestational age okay. so children who were born earlier tended to be um, tended to be uh, have more delays than those that were born older however we did find something interesting that was new in the literature at the time and that was the fact that children that were born um, later on, and so moderately or late premature, so that's kind of at 35 weeks gestation, were also more at risk to have delays. Mm. Um, and historically, those kids have been, um, it ha we haven't thought that, mm -hmm. that they were more at risk just because it just makes sense, no, right? They, seem they to do so well. Yeah. Right? Um, mm -hmm. And so that's something new that's coming out of the literature. Um, and that, so what we, historically, we thought that these kids were not at higher risk, but now we find that they are. So how common are premature births? Uh, well, globally, the World Health Organization estimates that about 10% of, um, of births are premature. Uh, that does vary a bit from one country, even one continent to the next. And, and generally, um, those that have better health care, better access mm -hmm. to health care, better nutrition, um, tend to have percentages that are lower than other countries. Okay, and I imagine also better prenatal care. And exactly, whatnot. yeah. Okay. And so the other interesting finding of the study, um, so the, the children born late premature, moderately premature, being at higher risk was one factor. And the other one was the influence of um, the social environment. Uh, so because we didn't have access to the parents' um, uh, revenue or 
What's the word I'm looking for? Educational level? Uh, yeah. No. So educational levels or salary levels. Um, we, we were only able to look at other social factors, and one of them was the presence of children's aid in oh, okay. the families' lives. Uh, and so we found that statistically all the children who were involved uh, with children's aid uh, had at least delays in one, mm -hmm. one domain. So e either gross motor or fine motor or language. Um, so that was uh, interesting as well. Mm -hmm. Now imagine if there are any parents listening, they might be a little bit alarmed because like you said, if it's about, you know, give or take 10% of all uh, babies that are born prematurely, what should parents be looking for if they have a, a baby who's just, you know, three or four weeks premature, nothing too alarming, like you said, mm -hmm. but we're finding out that more and more some of these less premature kids mm -hmm. are actually having some difficulties later on. So what should they be looking for? Mm -hmm. Um, I think the unfortunate part of children who are born moderately early premature is that they don't qualify for neonatal follow-up clinics. Mm. Um, so clinics tend to see children who are born at less than 28 in big centers, uh, less than 32 weeks in other um, centers. And so um, it's up to the parents to be advocates um, for, their, for their children okay. because the follow-up uh, will fall into the hands of either nurse practitioners or, or family doctors. And what we always like to tell families when they leave our clinic is that um, prematurity tends to be something that parents forget about. You know, by the time kids get mm -hmm. into school age, they, they seem fine, they're doing well, um, but they're still at risk for, for difficulties, um, especially as the requirements and the academic pressures um, start in school, like in grade one, in grade two, in grade three, when they have to read and write. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important for parents to not forget that their child was born premature and to tell um, their family doctors and to tell the school or daycare um, so that everybody, everybody can be a bit more vigilant and, and watching out for their, for their development and obviously keeping up with all their appointments. So those, mm -hmm. well baby, those well baby appointments that you should be bringing your child to where um, the family doctors should be doing a little screening of, the, of their development uh, are really important. And I would say the you know, the 12 and the 18 months uh, and 24 months are kind of those three mm -hmm. big ages where um, we would like children to have their development screened. Now, I know as speech language pathologists, we often get questions regarding, um, you know, a child's development. So maybe can you walk us through a little bit about what a bit of, of what we should expect at different ages mm -hmm. of a child's language development? Yeah, so from a language point of view, um, I, would, I would definitely say that those, the 12, the 18, and the, and the 24 months are our big ones. Um, because at 12 months is really when the child can formally show us that they understand and that they make the connection uh, with language. Um, so in my classes, I always talk about, you know, that transition from pre-intentional to intentional communication, where when they're, when they're younger, um, we attribute meaning to what they say or what the sounds that they make. So a child mm -hmm. might say "ba," and then it's the parent that's saying, oh yeah, you want the ball. Or um, Whereas at about 12 months is when they start to use those sounds appropriately. So they'll actually say "ba" and point to the ball and then the parent will know what they're talking about. Um, same thing from a, an understanding point of view. So it's around that time where you can ask your child to show you body parts or show you um, toys and they should be able to point to them. Uh, now, the number of words is something that parents are really mm -hmm. focused a lot of, uh, on, and it's important, but it's also very variable. Um, so, and, and from one website to another, or from one person to another, people will say different things. Uh, at 12 months, 
um, between 12 and 18 months, I like to say about 20 words. Um, but then at 18 months, that should start accumulating rapidly. Okay. Uh, so in the literature, um, the biggest red flag is 50 words at 18 months. Okay. Um, however, uh, what we need to remember is that there's a lot of things that count as words at 18 months. So for example, if your child says ball for ball, that counts as a word. If your mm -hmm. child says moo, that counts as a word, mm -hmm. um, even though it's just a sound. Um, now, again, at three years old, I would want something more sophisticated than moo, but at that, at that two-year-old period, um, it, it's acceptable to count everything. Um, so, uh, and the same thing with understanding of language. So that has to be, that has to become more complex with time as well. Um, and so what we tend to see at a young age is that a focus more on objects, on people. So mom and dad and toys and food. But then as they get older, we need to try to focus on different types of words. So action words, so mm -hmm. eat, drink, walk. And then as they get even older, focus on the attributes of those objects. So is it cold? Is it hot? Is it dirty? Is it... Um, and it's only when kids have different types of words like that that they'll be able to combine them because that's the second big uh, mm -hmm. milestone is word combinations. And we like to see those at two years as well. Okay. So mommy, eat, um, you know, car, go. Mm -hmm. uh, and we can't combine words if all we can name are objects and people. So right. we need different types of words. Um, the other thing that's, that's a, a big... Um, important thing to assess is obviously the presence of, of autism mm -hmm. um, and it's usually at that age as well that those um, characteristics start to be observable okay um, so some of the things that we want to see uh, at a year a year and a half is number one the child responding to their name mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and in doing that we also have to rule out hearing right so that's an important yeah. And an important aspect that we can never forget. Uh, so if at any point a parent is concerned about language, the first thing you always have to do is get their hearing checked. But let's assume that the child has mm -hmm. normal hearing. Uh, responding to their name is a big one. Um, pointing is a really big uh, one as well. And also um, the child responding to you pointing. So if I point to an object in a room, will the child look at that object? And we call that joint attention. So that's an important skill where both the child and the parent or the caregiver is looking at the same thing at the mm -hmm. same time. Um, and this is something that, you know, as parents, as daycare providers, um, it's something that we kind of do naturally mm -hmm. with kids. And we don't really think about the skills that we're actually working on. So it's not something that that is requires a lot of effort but like mm -hmm. you said just to watch out for those and kind of enjoy the moment and, and see if your child is interacting mm -hmm. with you, right yes and autism is something that is you know present at birth mm -hmm. but we just don't see it developmentally right. until they're and so kids who are autistic tend to do all those things less they tend to use mm -hmm. less gestures they tend to not have good eye contact and so if it's not significant it's something that the parent could kind of overlook because the child's always been kind of quiet the mm -hmm. child's always not been very um into interactions right and so it, it is it can be missed and but it's at that two-year mark because we're expecting so many things from a language point of view that uh, we notice it more now this reminds me i actually attended uh, 
little presentation that you gave a couple weeks ago and you played a video of these two babies and this can be found on YouTube so um, it's called Talking Twin Babies mm -hmm. and I actually, I had never seen that video. So oh my. Yeah, okay. I, know. I don't I don't teach a, a, you know preschool level. I teach more um, yeah. school age children's language development. So I'd like to maybe just play a little clip of that YouTube video for our listeners because it's very fascinating. Um, so let's take a listen. So these two, these are two twins that are in a kitchen talking. body expressions or showing so maybe kind of walk us through what's going on in this video yeah so for context uh, it's two twins uh, in their diapers they're in the kitchen they're standing by the fridge and uh, they are just having a full-on conversation that we know nothing about as, as adults um, and so they're going back and forth and I love showing this video because uh, it shows all what we call in our field the precursors to language uh, and parents focus so much on words and I want my child to talk and they have to say so many words but there's a lot of skills that have to come before those words and this video is perfect because it, it shows all those words so they're taking turns they're going back and forth mm -hmm. um, they're varying their intonation uh, so they're going da 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 and then one is laughing and mm -hmm. then the other one says it again and they're also there's the, the one that's saying da 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 keeps pointing to his sock and then the, the other twin will laugh. And they're, they're obviously having a conversation about the sock. Something's very funny about the sock that we don't really understand. And uh, it goes on for a really long time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, a, so yeah, there's the turn-taking, there's the intonation, there's the gestures, because they're pointing to the sock, he's showing the sock, both people are looking, both kids are, are looking at the sock. And uh, there is a language in that he's repeating da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, over and over again so it's it's for me quintessential in showing all the things that need to happen before we can have language mm -hmm. and I like to give that example uh, when I'm talking about different scenarios so if I'm assessing a 12 month old child and this is what he looks like I'm not worried because mm -hmm. he has all the precursors that he needs to develop language but if I was assessing a 12-month-old child who did not display all those skills, was very quiet, didn't point, uh, didn't really interact with, with people in his environment, I would be a lot more worried. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they're even looking at each other. Yes, very, eye contact yeah, I forgot about there. that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah, eye contact too. And just looking at the YouTube video right now, there are over 200 million views. So yeah. I'll put the link in the show notes. It's definitely yes. something that you, you need to take a look at just to see, like Roxanne was saying, all those amazing pre precursors to, to I don't even want to say language because that is almost a way of, of mm -hmm. communicating, but just precursors mm -hmm. to those first words. Mm -hmm. Full disclosure, a lot of those clicks are probably mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's okay. Or, or your students. Yeah. So more recently, you um, were awarded a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council grant, so we're, we're going to use the acronym, which is a SHRC, mm -hmm. um, to kind of look at ways in which we can better identify preschoolers 
um, at an earlier age in order to prevent some of these difficulties later on. So can you tell us a bit more about this research that you're working on right now? Mm -hmm. So I have been teaching now for, for 10 years almost, which is kind of scary, but, yeah. and um, my research has kind of progressed from that initial neonatal follow-up clinic to um, the application of, of early identification in, in all children. Um, and so, and it, it's kind of linear in terms of how it got me here. Uh, so the first part was the PhD study and, you know, finding the risk factors that were, um, that were observable in, in premature children. And then, uh, a few years after that, I took those same children I, and I assessed them at school age. So they were born prematurely, but now you know, mostly typically developing and in schools. And so we went back and did a kind of a more exhaustive battery of speech and language development. Um, but we also looked at attention and memory and executive functioning because a lot of research is showing that they, those skills have a big impact on, on language development. And um, so maybe just tell us, I know I've talked about it on yes. uh, episode one and three, but maybe remind us what are executive yes, functions. Right. Um, so executive functioning is kind of the front part of our brain that allows us to function um, on a daily level. Um, so it's our ability to, um, to focus on a task, to ignore other tasks, to shift our attention from one task to another, to organize our life, to be aware of time, to... Mm -hmm. so, um, they're, I think, the most uh, essential skill in terms mm -hmm. of, of learning and, mm -hmm. and being functional and, and, and in adulthood. Um, so there's three major tasks or three major parts of executive functioning. So there's memory, um, there's inhibition, and there's cognitive flexibility. So those are the three kind of big mm -hmm. words. Um, mm -hmm. By that essentially means being able to move from one task to another, being able to pay attention and to, to ignore distractions. Um, and uh, I was surprised to find, so the other thing is that in research, there's a lot of attention that's been placed on children born prematurely, but little on language. So we focus a lot of our, a lot of research has been focused on cognitive um, skills, on IQ, on, um, you know, the, the kind of the big disabilities like cerebral palsy, hearing impairment, um, but there hasn't been a lot of attention placed on this, the speech and language skills that a, a speech mm -hmm. language pathologist would do. Um, so I wasn't really sure what I was going to find. And quite surprisingly, uh, I found that in language, their understanding and their use of language was mostly within normal limits. Mm -hmm. So there were some, a small subset of children who did um, qualify for a diagnosis of a developmental language disorder. but. Um, not more than what we would find in an everyday population. But what we did find, whereas where the differences were, uh, was in those executive functioning skills. Mm -hmm. um, so more specifically in attention and that flexibility. So moving from one activity to the next. And I mean, um, I think we really underestimate, like you said, it, I, I also believe that those are some of the most important functions. How mm -hmm. are you supposed to learn uh, in school or, or any type of new mm. activity when you can't pay attention or you can't ignore distractions around you. So, mm -hmm. um, it, you know, in a way, it's not surprising, mm -hmm. but I keep saying this in every episode, communication disorders are often invisible. Yeah. <laughs> and so you don't see this in these kids, mm -hmm. whereas their gross motor and their fine motor skills are something, some things that are very mm -hmm. visible. 
So, okay, so you found that some of these kids... Yes, yeah, and, and we decided to include those tasks because um, research had shown that children who are born prematurely are more likely to have a diagnosis of ADD or ADHD. Mm -hmm. But clinically, I also um, observed a lot in my practice in the neonatal follow-up clinic that the kids that came in for assessment and seemed very disorganized in their play mm -hmm. and their ability to focus on one task... Um, were the ones that ended up being identified as delays. So I would call it the kind of the tornado factor. So mm -hmm. the kid that comes in and the toys are everywhere, it's a big disaster at the end of the assessment, um, tended to be those that were identified. Now that was just my observation, but it was interesting that it was my observation and then it was in the more psychology literature or medical literature and then we found it in our sample as well, which again is small. Mm -hmm. um, so we can't make some huge sweeping generalizations, but uh, we did notice that. And so um, because of the limitations in terms of population and number of kids that I could assess, um, I decided to kind of broaden my, my research, um, still focusing on the population that I liked, which is preschool, still focusing on things that I like, like risk factors. Mm -hmm. And um, I am a huge, huge proponent of early identification and, and early intervention. And I think that's where mm -hmm. we can make the most difference in kids' lives. And so that's where that grant um, came in. And so we are looking at a new way of identifying children uh, who will go on to have a developmental language disorder. So maybe before I get into the study, I should explain mm -hmm. what that is. Yeah, we did talk about it on episode two with Alex Cross a little bit, but maybe just in a nutshell, what is a developmental language disorder? Yeah, so in the preschool population, which is different from, let's say, your population mm -hmm. at the school age, um, is that there's a large number of kids who are identified as being delayed, um, but that doesn't mean that they will remain delayed. So mm -hmm. when a child is identified in the preschool age as having a delayed language, they can kind of follow two paths. One of them is what we call a late talker. So mm -hmm. they're delayed, but they catch up so by school So what would that look age. like? What, what is a late talker? If I'm a parent, I have no idea. Yeah, so again, the big, uh, in the literature, the big markers are not using 50 words at okay. two and not combining words Okay. at two. Those right. are the two big things. Again, mm -hmm. keeping into mind that there's variability. I'll, uh, this reminds me, I'll put in the show notes a few links to some of the checklists that you might find online, uh, credible checklists that can help a parent determine whether or not they should be worried about their child's language development. So be sure to look for those in the show notes at theparleypodcast.com. Mm -hmm. um, yes, so a child can be a late talker and catch up by school age. Um, but a child can also, regardless of intervention and even, in, even with intervention, continue to have delays. And those are the children um, who have no biomedical condition, so they don't have a hearing impairment, they don't have autism, they, they don't have any other condition that causes a mm -hmm. developmental delay. Um, they are simply delayed in their speech and language um, okay. skills. And so those are developmental language disorders and account for about 7 to 10% mm -hmm. of, of kids. Which is a lot, and I, I keep saying this when I talk about this. Yes. You ask anybody, anybody, if they know what autism is, and guaranteed they will have a general idea. There are so many movies out there that will have as their main character someone with autism. Um, you you know ask if they know what dyslexia is, and most people do know, but developmental language disorder, nobody knows, and it's just as common as dyslexia, so mm -hmm. and way more common than autism. Mm -hmm. So definitely have a lot of work to do there. 
Which is why, which is why we're here talking today. Yes, yeah. Okay, so uh, about 7 to 10% of kids right. have a developmental yeah. language disorder, or DLD, as we mm -hmm. often call it. So as a speech-language pathologist, those are the kids that we want to focus our attention on. Um, and right now, we can't determine uh, when a child is identified at 18 months, um, which path they will follow. Mm -hmm. So if we could um, identify them and predict, in statistical terms, if we could predict the ones that will go on to have a DLD, we could focus our attention and our resources much more efficiently mm -hmm. um, than what we do now, which is giving the same services to all the kids, and, and they deserve that right now because we don't know how. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we're doing that in... Well, we're doing it in one way, um, but it could lead to two possible outcomes. Um, so in this study, uh, we are assessing children born premature. Or, sorry, that's my old, <laughs> my old uh, project. So we are, we are assessing um, children, preschool age children, uh, and we don't know if they have delays or not, or in some cases we do. So we're looking for children who have no delays and we're looking for children who, who do have delays um, at about three years of age, uh, and um, we're assessing them longitudinally. So every year from the time they're three to the time they start school. And so two things happen when the children come in for an assessment. Uh, the parent fills out uh, parental questionnaires. So these are questionnaires similar to the ones that you're going to post on your, on your website that have been um, validated. So they've been used on a large number of parents and children and are able to detect the ones that are at risk. Mm -hmm. um, so taken together, these questions are taken independently. The questions, the questionnaires are only good at identifying the children that are at risk. They're not good at predicting those that will have right. delays. And they can measure different things. So they can measure language, they can measure the use of gestures and all those kind of precursors to language we talked about. They can measure attention and executive functioning. They can measure the social, uh, or the social environment. Um, but as far as I know, no one yet has looked at using them together. So mm -hmm. that's what we're doing. So we chose questionnaires that measure markers of DLDs and we're using them together. So there's one on just overall development. There's one on the social environment. There's one for gestures. Um, there's one for um, executive functioning. Mm -hmm. And there's one for um, pragmatics, which is the social aspect mm -hmm. of language. Um, so the parent fills out those questionnaires, and at the same time, we assess the child uh, with a task that matches those um, questionnaires. So we're essentially assessing the same thing, except for the social environment. We can't assess that, but um, we assess language, vocabulary, um, pragmatics, and there's one task for attention and, and executive functioning. And so I like to tell people that in the worst case scenario, the speech language assessment that we've created will be able to predict mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, those children because even as speech language pathologists, if we had a, a you know, rapid fire way of telling, of predicting DLDs, that would help us. Uh, and the best case scenario, uh, what the parents have told us, taken together, will predict um, the children that will go on to have a diagnosis of DLD which would help us immensely because the, the thing about these questionnaires that we're using is that they're available for everyone. Mm -hmm. So a doctor's office could use them, nurse practitioners, daycares, early intervention. Um, if it works, which you know I hope it does, um, then uh, we would be able to, or, or more people could identify those kids. And mm -hmm. then again, saving money, um, 
allowing us to to better allocate resources and really focus on those kids who will go on to struggle. Oh, absolutely, because in the research that I've been doing, I find that oftentimes it's not before the child is five, six, sometimes seven or eight years of age that they are identified as having a developmental language disorder. And at, by that point, they've kind of missed out on a lot of instruction with regards to literacy, reading mm -hmm. and, and whatnot, just because they're, they're struggling so much just with the basic language mm -hmm. abilities that they're, it's difficult for them to learn all of the mm -hmm. other academic yeah. topics. So that's and maybe fantastic. From your research, I mean, maybe you could tell us what the effects are of developmental language disorders in school, in school and yes. even later um, so we do have a video that is posted with um, episode two that was produced by Alex Cross you can find it on YouTube where she talks about the effects of a developmental language disorder on school performance and so yeah these children will have significant difficulties learning any academic topic because you can't learn anything if you're not using language to learn it even math um, sciences um, of course you know the most obvious ones language such as English or French in school and so uh, a lot of these kids really struggle and there's some more recent literature that is showing that there's kind of uh, tends to be a school what's called the school to prison pipeline um, where a lot of these kids who may have a developmental language disorder or any other type of language disorder that may be caused by a biomedical condition like you talked about, a lot of these kids end up incarcerated. Um, and so it's quite alarming the amount of inmates who actually have a language disorder of some sort. And so we really need to identify these kids early on, provide them mm. with the support that they need early on. But like you said, it's very difficult. And again and again, I keep saying this because communication disorders are for the most part invisible. Yeah. Parents might bring their, their young child to the doctor's office and may have some suspicions, but because it's not obvious, oftentimes we'll use the let's wait and see approach, mm -hmm. uh, which we're really trying to move away from. You know, yes. if a parent has doubts most parents are pretty good at judging their child's abilities in fact research mm -hmm. has shown that that uh, when parents have concerns a very 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 high percentage of the, of the time they are correct mm -hmm. and so in the medical community if a parent comes to you with concerns um, the research supports accepting that concern even if you're not able to to see it yourself. Exactly, and I mean, it's not a big deal to just refer to a professional yeah. who can maybe mm -hmm. better assess that mm -hmm. child. And I've, I've kind of adopted this, this concept that I read um, in the prematurity literature where we talk about a uh, perfect storm. So, and I feel like that describes pretty well kids who uh, are undiagnosed and have developmental language disorders where it creates this perfect storm mm -hmm. of not understanding, not succeeding, which can lead to behaviors mm -hmm. or dropping out or giving up depending on the child's um, personality. And um, it's not the, the language disorder in itself that will you know, create an individual that will, that will go on and, and, and have trouble, mm -hmm. um, have legal difficulties, but it's linear in mm -hmm. that one thing leads to another, yeah. leads to another, that leads to another. And it's and you know we'll think oh you know the child is just weak or just weak in language or just you know 
isn't strong in school, um, but there's no reason for kids to not be able to succeed at least Mm-hmm. at the norm exactly. you know the norms are kind of there for a reason so if your child is beha- is 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 functioning below the norm mm-hmm. the which best the thing- norm is typically a b um yeah. or in the canadian system we use numbers one to four so a three yeah would be the norm so anything below that is, mm-hmm. is considered as a risk factor essentially yeah. or something to be worried about mm-hmm. and and again parents need to be um, advocates for their children um, because the school system is big. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot of kids that that need services, and so unfortunately, it's the ones that are the most disruptive mm-hmm. and and or have the most difficulties that will get service first. But that doesn't mean that you know your child doesn't deserve to have an assessment as well, just to mm-hmm. so that we can better um, support him or her. Yep, absolutely. And while you were talking, I um, was looking up some of the statistics. Um, so you were saying that, you know, if there is a late talker, so there's a study here that was conducted in Victoria, Australia, mm-hmm. and it shows that kids who are two years of age and who are late talkers, well, 5% of those kids will go on to actually have a, a DLD. Mm-hmm. So there are other kids that obviously will go on and, and mm-hmm. catch up, but there's a, you know, 5%, which is pretty considerate yeah and they also showed the reverse of that right so there there was also yes. some kids that were identified as being typically de- or having typical development that later on were identified as being delayed too yeah i'm looking at it here so they're saying of the 81 percent that were typical talkers six percent went on to have uh impaired language abilities so mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's something that we need to raise awareness, and I, I keep saying this. I feel like a broken record, but I truly believe that um, we've been quiet for too long, and it's time mm-hmm. to really let people know that even though you can't necessarily see it, it's invisible. If you have doubts, consult a professional and be an advocate for mm-hmm. for your child. So you talked about what some of the um, milestone milestones are for mm-hmm. for developing children what can parents do other than refer obviously their their child to a speech pathologist or you know another medical professional what can they do to try to um, stimulate their child's language development Mm -hmm. Um, I think I think that we're busy um, as families um, and we're getting busier Uh, we're you know, we're, we're putting kids in lots of activities where uh, we have more parents that are working and so we have less time in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've, you know, we're seeing it a lot in the media, this reliance on um, electronics yeah. and phones and iPads and because we just, there's not enough time, right? And so, mm-hmm. and I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say that we need to, you know, ban all electronics because my kids have some and I, I realize that it's, it's um it's a part of life. I think that what I would like parents to do is just to take the time. Mm-hmm. So children uh, don't learn language by watching Baby Einstein. They don't no. learn language <laughs> by playing with electronics. And in fact, there's one study that came out, the first longitudinal study that looked at uh, the use of electronics. And um, they found that kids who spent more than two hours per day on electronics had decreased cognitive scores, so they were hmm. had IQ scores that were lower, had language scores that were lower, had reading scores that were lower, so um, we, we really need to curb 
mm-hmm. that use. Um, now, in really young children, uh, it's easier. Um, so uh, kids who are you know under three need toys. Mm-hmm. Playing is not playing. Playing is their job. That's right. Um, so they need to mm-hmm. interact with toys. They need to learn how toys work. That's how we develop their their curiosity. That's how we develop their play skills, their social skills. Like mm-hmm. play is so 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 important at that age. And so I would tell parents if you're at home. And you can't do it all the time. I realize that, but you know it's important a few times a day to sit on the floor and play with your child, mm-hmm. uh, and use language uh, and label things. Label, you know, that I can say that a ball is a ball. I can say that it's round. I can say that it's red. Mm-hmm. I can say that it bounces. I need to use a lot of words and a lot of different types of words when I'm interacting with my child. Um, and I also need to follow my child's interests. So. You know, I might really want to play with this one toy, but my child is focused on another toy. Mm-hmm. I'll get more bang for my buck <laughs> if I follow my child's interest yeah. and um, play with the toy that my child is interested in. On the flip side, if you do have a kid who has short attention span, um, you might want to force the issue a little bit where you kind of hide, right. hide all the other <laughs> toys and then you just take out one at a time just to kind of increase mm-hmm. attention for one task. Now, again, when they're young, we're not expecting a long time. You know, a couple mm-hmm. of minutes is all you want. And then uh, if you're not sure how to play with toys or if you don't have access to a lot of toys, then there's a lot of community resources that are available to you in order to expose your child to those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in Ontario, we have what we call early on Mm -hmm. um, Ontario, like early on O-N. We call them hubs and they have tons of programming for kids, uh, for parents, uh, for kids and parents. And um, I would strongly suggest, and even if you have access to toys, just because of that social mm-hmm. aspect, you want kids to be exposed to other kids. Well, I think in many communities now, there are toy libraries. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to buy yeah. all these expensive toys. You can borrow no. them or even um, create your own little play groups with other, with other parents and kids mm-hmm. and share toys that way. Mm-hmm. The library, you mentioned mm-hmm. the toy library, but the actual library is another good resource. Mm-hmm. Um, there's better beginnings, better futures, mm-hmm. um, or our children are future. Those are all organizations that do a really good job of providing uh, opportunities for kids and parents to interact with each other and, and with toys. And also your school, um, your community school is probably a good, uh, most school boards in mm-hmm. Sudbury anyways have groups for parents of mm-hmm. preschool children where you can go once a week and there's planned activities. Um, if you have a bit of OCD like me, you can bring your child somewhere else to be messy. <laughs> yeah. So they have arts and crafts and, you know, all of these things that are, that are known to be mm-hmm. good for child development. Yeah. Um, oh, I keep thinking of things and then as I, I need to write them down as you're yeah. talking so that they don't escape me. Uh, I'll come back after. Um, <laughs> I'll think about it. So obviously this podcast is a podcast about communication, about talking, about understanding. So I tend to ask all of my guests, what does communication mean to you? Ah, well, I kind of touched on it. So obviously as a speech language pathologist, I believe communication is important. So I actually said this at that presentation that you, you attended. Um, I, I've, I've elevated that to think. <laughs> so I, I, and because we need to advocate more for, for communication, I think it's the most important skill that we have. Um, we need it to make friends. We need it to resolve arguments. Uh, we need it to ask questions. We need mm-hmm. it to get help. We need it to function on, mm-hmm. on, on a day-to-day level. Uh, without communication, we can't learn, we can't work, and we can't be effective 
um, partners or, or mm-hmm. friends. Um, and, and from a research point of view, I think it's even as important because it's how we use it to learn about the world. It's how we're using it to learn about, in my case, you know, preschool children and how they learn language and how we can better identify them. So I, I think it's the most important skill that we have and that's why I think we need to understand it more mm-hmm. and, and identify it better and, and intervene. Absolutely. I just posted a little meme on my Instagram and I wrote something to the effect of language is the ability to associate words to your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so you can have, we all have thoughts, but if you can't associate words to those thoughts, how are you going to share that thought, right? Mm-hmm. Whether you're, you're asking for something, you're arguing, you're yeah. trying to debate something, you're, you know, all of that requires those words mm-hmm. associated to those thoughts and they would be able to, to connect those words mm-hmm. appropriately. And I just remembered what I was going to talk about. So over the weekend, uh, we were, you know, close to, to Toronto and I took my family to Dave and Buster's, which is an enormous arcade essentially it's I, I call it Vegas for kids yeah, definitely <laughs> um, and so I was at a table and my kids were playing so I, I kind of sat there for a while by myself just guarding our booth and there were these two young women at the table across from me and I was at our table for a good hour and 20 minutes and I kid you not for the entire time the entire hour and 20 minutes that I was there they were looking at their phones. Hmm. They barely communicated. And I was just astonished by this. I mean, is it is this something that we should be worried about? You know, um, oh, definitely. They, they did not interact. It was as though they had a screen, a huge, if you've seen that, that this is another meme where you have yeah. that huge screen separating two people and they really didn't interact. So it is, it is worrisome. Um, I almost wanted to go and talk to them yeah. <laughs> you know, and say, guys, yeah. you know. Yeah, because this is kind of what we were talking about before in terms of the importance of communication. But I mean, arguably, the goal is to is, is for a child to become a, mm-hmm. a, what's the word, a productive person mm-hmm. in society, right? Exactly. And so to be productive, I, there, I dare say there are very few um, avenues that don't require communication. Mm-hmm. And so in children who are delayed, you know, that's obviously very important, but this subset, you know, the teenagers mm-hmm. or, or the, and even as adults, I mean, I've noticed myself becoming a bit more yep. dependent on my phone and it's actually a goal of mine regularly to not mm-hmm. use it so often. Um, but I think, uh, the difference between us and teenagers is that they, they've always had it. Yeah. And so I don't really think that they can, they have anything to compare it to. And I think as parents, the most important thing that we can do mm-hmm. is force them yep. to put it away because they're not, you, you can't communicate through a phone and, the same way. and no. develop the skills that you need in real life. Like no. those, those are not one and the same. No, no, I, I agree. And I think also model communication right, right? And, and model mm-hmm. getting off your phone exactly right so I mean. if mm-hmm. i'm oh yeah sorry so if i'm a if i'm a parent and i'm always on my mm-hmm. phone i can't be upset if my child is on my on the phone all the time yep. even though i do try to explain the distinction and that sometimes i'm on my phone for work right. so i try to do that you know yep. like right now i'm checking my emails and mm-hmm. and not like i'm on facebook and having fun you know yeah no absolutely okay i'm taking a look at uh, my here so we've looked at what communication means to you what would be your take-home message for our listeners today 
Uh, I mean, I think I've said it, but I'll say it again. Uh, it's early in identification and, and intervention. And the one thing that I, I kind of didn't touch on um, in terms of language de development, so this is my one shot with this <laughs> grant to try to um, find a way to better identify mm -hmm. children and identify them more easily and rapidly. Um, but there's so much variability and there's so many factors that come into play uh, in, a ch in a young child who is learning language. I've, I've kind of started to accept that maybe that's not possible. Mm -hmm. Maybe we won't be able to find a way to, to identify children. Um, and then the next step is early intervention then. If we can't mm -hmm. identify them early, then we need to find a, an efficient I guess efficient, yeah, way to to help them mm -hmm. overcome those delays by the time they start school. And I think that as speech and language pathologists, we haven't done that very well. Um, we need to, more people need to look at, I mean, it's, it's easier, I find, to work on assessment mm -hmm. because, you know, I can have a child in front of me assess them and then analyze data, whereas intervention kind of falls more in that gray zone. But I think if we're going to help children, mm -hmm. um, we really need to start focusing on intervention and, and find ways to help children and help um, ways that, that fit for a lot of kids. Well, I was going to say that. I mean, if we have a difficult time identifying children earlier on because of all these variables, mm -hmm. then perhaps we provide language stimulation to all the kids. Mm -hmm. You know, those who are familiar with the, the tier system, this would be um, the tier one level mm -hmm. essentially where all of the kids in, in daycares or preschools would benefit from mm -hmm. really heightened language exposure mm -hmm. and, and um, provide them with opportunities to produce language to, to, to mm -hmm. play. Gosh, like you said, play is such an yeah. important one. So yeah, absolutely. But I, I've got my fingers crossed. I've got hopes that we'll be able to, or that you'll be able to identify ways yes. in which we can red flag those mm -hmm. kids at the age of three. Yeah. Um, are there any resources out there that are go-tos for you? Yeah, um, so in terms of parents and if they are um, concerned about their child's development, uh, Ontario has a website for their, for their preschool um, speech and language programs. Um, so I can give you these websites, you can add them, but mm -hmm. it's www.children.gov, like government.on.ca. And so those will, uh, so all the preschool programs in Ontario will be located there. So you can find out where the one is closest to you. And then they also have information regarding um, milestones and things to look for. Uh, if you're looking at norms, so the kind of the ones we were talking about today, our, um, associ our Canadian mm -hmm. association is called SAC. Um, so they have a website, sac.oac.ca. And then one uh, organization that is a nonprofit that has become very widely known across the world uh, comes from Canada and from Toronto and is called Hannon. Mm -hmm. um, so H-A-N-E-N.org. And they have um, actually uh, intervention programs. So mm -hmm. it's, it's probably the one that's the most widely used um, with parents. Um, uh, so it's a parent um, intervention program. So it's not focused on the kids, it's focused on the parents. Um, but they have lots of lots and lots and lots of resources, and it's all made um, from for it's like parent friendly. Mm -hmm. So they will um, take articles that are scientific and very complicated and make them under easy to understand for parents. Yeah, it's a great website. I mm -hmm. definitely recommend it, and I'll put all of those on the show yeah. notes. 
And the last one is American, but it's mm -hmm. zero to three. So they're an organization that focuses on that zero to three population. So same thing, but they don't just do speech and language. They look at development. They look at social, emotional growth. They even look at eating and feeding. So um, it's a great resource for parents as well. Mm -hmm. And just thinking back to some of those early um, childhood centers or those hubs like you were saying mm -hmm. I remember when my kids were really young that was kind of a break for me to take my kids there yes. because it was you know a couple hours in the morning and they would often provide snacks for the kids and they would do story time and they would do song time mm -hmm. and they would have free play and it was a time of the day where I could actually talk to another adult yes yeah and, <laughs> and another mom or exactly, another who's going caregiver. through the same same stages of development mm -hmm. with their kids as I was. So I, I strongly recommend it. Sometimes I, you know, probably showed up very disheveled, uh, but that's parenthood for you. So yes. I, yeah. yeah and I, I remember too, you know, mm -hmm. being so tired that the, the, the energy that it would take to get <laughs> yeah. yourself ready and your child ready just sometimes didn't seem worth it, especially right. in this winter when there yeah. is 14 <laughs> feet of snow outside. But, um, I think it, it is important. It's, it's, it's important for the mom's mm -hmm. mental health, uh, it's important for the child's development, um, yeah. but I just to not that you have to do it all the time, but you no, can miss one yeah. once in a while, but definitely try to, to make it if you can. Well, I think we've kind of gone around most of the topics that I would wanted to touch on. Is there anything that you didn't get a chance to talk about that you, you really want our listeners to... Um, well, there's a participation in the studies, so yeah, for sure, uh, of course. we, you know, have this grand idea and, you know, we think it's, it's, it has a good shot of working, but we can't do it without families and we know how busy families are. And so mm -hmm. the biggest challenge right now is the recruitment of families. So we've handed out uh, over a thousand flyers and, um, we have completed about 35 assessments and I'm looking for 200. So we mm -hmm. still have quite some a ways to go. Um, so the the email address is lu for Laurentian University, lu language study okay. at gmail dot com. And so you just have to send an email to that um, address, and we'll contact you and see if you qualify. And we're giving families $50 per assessment um, okay. to offset the cost related to travel and things like that. Um, we are, we're also going into daycares. So if your child is in a daycare, we can go in most daycares to complete the assessments. Um, and the only other thing I wanted to say was, um, about professionals. So, um, and I think that that's an easy one, um, as a clinician, you know, it's very busy. You have a big caseload. You have lots of families that you need to work with. And some of the thing, or one of the things that tends to fall to the wayside is, is research and kind of staying up to date mm -hmm. on research. And I think one of the things that's changing the most about children with developmental disorders is, is our, our comprehension and our knowledge of those mm -hmm. markers, especially in the preschool and school age um, population. And so um, to try to stay up to date with, with what is the best marker for that diagnosis, because then you're increasing your your odds of catching the mm -hmm. ones that, that um, can be um, delayed. And if you don't have the time to just call us at yeah. Laurentian and we will gladly go and present and share um, whatever it is that we know um, and our expertise in, in the field. And we're always willing to help out clinicians in the community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I invite listeners to, you can put a comment um, on the bottom of the show notes. You can also direct message me through Instagram at the Parley Podcast. 
Um, you can email me, you can email the email address that Roxanne just provided, which I will put in the show notes. Um, now, just to maybe clarify a little bit quickly, you indicated that um, parents can contact you and then you'll determine if they qualify. What, what do they need to qualify? Um, well, right now we are trying to, I said that the three years, so 36 months, that's kind of the, the target age where we want to do that first assessment. Um, and so we are looking at, at families who have children between 33 and about 40 months. Uh, and it, again, so because uh, biomedical conditions tend to confound the results, um, we are looking for children who up at this point do not have another diagnosis. Okay. So it's okay if they've had hearing infections, like um, it's okay if they were born prematurely, but if they have a known condition mm -hmm. um, like autism or Down syndrome, that is already attached to mm -hmm. to delays that that really makes it um, a bit more difficult to analyze the results and so what i like to tell families is not that we're not interested in that population is that we need to start with um, uh, a population that is typically developing and if it works with that population mm -hmm. then move on to to other um, diagnoses and to see if it works with them okay and you're looking at um, recruiting families from primarily Northeastern Ontario here in Canada? Yeah, mm -hmm. so Sudbury uh, going as far as um, North Bay and then we hope this spring and summer to go in for, into the Northeast, so um, communities like New Liskert or Timmins, um, mm -hmm. the Timiskaming mm -hmm. region, um, yeah. Now certain studies will disclose right off the bat that the results will not be shared with the family. So if let's say you um, identify a child with having some significant difficulties, is this something as part of your study that will be shared with the family or is it strictly confidential No, absolutely. Yeah. So that's one of the advantages that, that we tell families is that they, they get a fairly full assessment of their child's language abilities. Now, the only thing that we are not assessing is speech sounds. Mm -hmm. So we're not doing articulation. Um, but I, if we do note mm -hmm. something that's atypical, um, mm -hmm. we let families know, but the families are all uh, informed of the results. And if delays are noted, then we guide them in the steps that they need to take to um, get a complete assessment and intervention. Okay, so this is a really great opportunity for, for families out there who may be living in communities where there aren't any speech language pathologists or that, you know, I know that here sometimes the wait is a year or even yes. longer. Mm -hmm. So um, please, if this is something that is interesting to you, to your family, um, check out the show notes at theparleypodcast.com and you'll find all the information there related to Roxanne's study. Well, I think this concludes our episode. Thank you very, very much for agreeing to talk with me this morning. I think that this is a very fascinating topic that will probably interest a lot of parents who have young kids and who may be concerned about their child's language or who may not be concerned, but just want to make sure that mm -hmm. their child is on the right path. So thanks again. Yes. And if parents have any questions, they can contact me and I could help them mm -hmm. kind of navigate the system too, if they want. For sure. And now we can eat our Cadbury mini eggs that we've been staring at for the last hour. <laughs> didn't, didn't want to crunch them. No, I know. All right. Well, take care, everybody. And uh, be sure to look for all of those links on the show notes. And don't hesitate to email me or, uh, like I said, direct message me at the Parley Podcast um, on Instagram. Take care.